Exodus 20, 17. It is the final commandment of the Ten Commandments that we've been studying. The Tenth Commandment, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The Tenth Commandment teaches us that we are either coveting or being contented in our lives at any given moment. We're either, we're either coveting or content. Now, I want to ask you this question before we start. Right now in your life, would you say that you're, you're, you're more coveting and, and desirous and, and grabbing onto things and holding on, or, or, or are you more content? Now, I know um, 99% of you are perfectly content. Um, I don't think so. Lack of contentment is really easy to come by. And particularly in our consumer culture, and we'll get into that in a little bit, um, but it's not always easy to diagnose why we lack contentment. Sometimes we do need to ask the question, why are we anxious? You know, why are we so unsettled? Why do we lack contentment? But the scriptures this morning would have us ask a different question. It's not, what are you anxious about? The Tenth Commandment is around this question. What is it that you want so badly and don't have? Therefore, you're anxious. I mean, is it career advancement? And that's just who, where your identity is. That's what it has to be for you to be happy. You're not going to race, you know, rest until you got it. And make everybody miserable around you. Is it recognition? Is it income or symbols of wealth that you feel like you need to project who you'd like for people to think you are? Is it a relationship with a person? You know, you go back to college experience and, you know, unless I'm dating this girl or, or that guy, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to be happy. This is what I have to have. Or is it a thing? I mean, is it something that somebody else has? Is it their house? Is it their their car? Is it their four-wheeler? Whatever, you know? What is it for you right now? What is it? that you feel that you've got to have so that life will be the way it ought to be for you. Let me say that again. What is it you really feel like you've got to have so that life will be what it should be according to you? It's as old as the fall, isn't it? This whole idea of, of coveting and grabbing. But uh, I think we could say safely that this is a, a very American struggle as well. Very current. We tend to be uh, acquisitive in our culture. We, we tend to be a, a nation of unsatisfied coveters that really struggle with the Tenth Commandment. And trust me, I've been, I've been beat up on all week about this. So you only have to bear it for 30 minutes. Here's what I want you to to understand and remember this morning. Coveting traps our soul in a web of its own making, but contentment sets us free. Coveting traps our soul in a web of our own making, but contentment 
sets us free. You know, when God brought the Ten Commandments down or sent those tablets down, when, when God said, you shall not covet, He was actually saying something very loving and very gracious because He really wants more for us than that. So let's look at this idea of coveting as a, a web that we build that our souls get trapped in this own web of, of our desires. You know, I, I can see it right now in my mind, and any of you who've raised children can see this as well. You know, uh, my girls are college age and senior now, so we don't have any of these things anymore, but I can see them as preschoolers. And uh, it's that moment when they're playing together and just simultaneously they lock their eyes on the same toy at the same time and then simultaneously they both grab the same toy. Now we've got two little crabs that have just pinched down on the same toy all at once and it is a duel to the death between these two little crabs. And what do you do with that as a parent? Well, you can go and you can rip the thing away and say, if you're not going to share, nobody gets it. Okay, that's one way to deal with it, right? Or you could say, maybe to one of the children, I don't know why you'd pick one or the other, but maybe you know why, I don't know. But you'd say, sweetheart, sweetheart, you can have one of these instead. Is that working? No. I mean, you could throw $1,000 bills down. You could talk Disney World vacations. But what you're hearing at that moment is, no, I want this one. And so do we. So do we grown-ups. Because that's what the Tenth Commandment is about. We're just like that in our hearts. We get so fixated on that thing that thing that needs to happen, this relationship, whatever it is that I've got to have so that life can be the way it should be according to me. Just one problem. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. Did, did you notice uh, in the text it said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Let's, let's put this in a, in a modern equivalence. This is kind of dangerous to do, but I'm going to give it a try. Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's probably still house, okay? You shall not uh, covet your neighbor's wife. We're going to let that be a wife still. And this, don uh, this um, ox, we're going to call that a tractor. All right, this is an agrarian society that we're uh, learning from. You shall not covet your neighbor's tractor. And the donkey's going to be a truck. Or your neighbor's truck or his manservant or mason, or your neighbor's job. You're not to want your neighbor's job. I mean, there aren't many places on the planet that you can actually talk about coveting tractors and trucks, and it actually me is meaningful to the people listening. Mississippi is one of those places. But you know, it's even worse than just wanting somebody something somebody has. God knows when it's not good for us to have it. See, it's worse than just our wanting it. It's worse than just the time wasted on, on things that are too small to invest our, our lives into. God doesn't want us to have it sometimes, and, and, we're gonna, and we want it anyway. And we're not going to stop until we get it. So, what is coveting? Let me give you a definition. Coveting is when a good desire turns into a sinful craving. Coveting is when a good desire turns into a sinful 
craving. Coveting is about what you've got to have to make your life okay. And you're not going to stop till you get it. And we do live in a consumer culture, do we not? That's kind of built on trying to get us to need things and to want things that we don't necessarily really need. And then you add to that not only this, this, this creation of, of I've got to have that for my life to be okay, for people to think I'm cool, whatever. You add to that the idea that no one should keep you from having what you want. That's lethal. A man was teaching his son how to dream big dreams for his life. He said, son, i tell you what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to go through a bunch of magazines. You can go up on the internet, whatever you want to do. And I want you to find the biggest, glossiest pictures of whatever it is you want in life. If it's a house, cut it out. Cut it out of the magazine. If it's a truck, cut it out. Whatever it is. And I want you to, to paste it on our refrigerator door. So every time you walk by that door, you'll be motivated to go after your dream, son. Really. I mean, are your biggest dreams what you can cut out of a magazine and paste to a refrigerator? Those are far too small. That's not worth the bondage to that stuff. It's not worth tying your hearts and my heart to things. It's it's being far too easily pleased in our lives when when God has created us for something deeper and richer and, and much more satisfying than what you could cut out of a magazine and tape onto your refrigerator door. And it is killing us. It is creating a web of our, of our own grabbing and needing and gotta-having. And we're getting, our hearts are getting caught in that web of our own making. The Scriptures are filled with people that are just ruined by coveting. I mean, filled with people. I'll give you a great example. Two, two examples. King David. King David was on a roof one day. When the kings went out to war, he didn't go out to war that year. He was on the roof, and what did he see? He saw a very beautiful woman who happened to be the wife of one of his uh, commanding officers. A a guy that he actually knew and respected, Uriah the Hittite. Totally committed to King David. Totally loyal. And he saw this beautiful woman bathing on top of a roof. And you know what he said? I gotta have that for my life to be what it should be. And this guy sent his armed guards to go get her and bring her back. And he impregnated her. And then he killed her husband. And this is, is this awful or what? I told you all the Bible's R-rated. I told you. It nearly ruined him. Because of what he had to have for his life to be what it needed to be. Another great example is King Ahab, who was one of the kings of the northern kingdom, He was married to this uh, lady. We don't always remember the queen's names, but her name is Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel, and they had everything. They lived in opulence. But, you know, there was this this little man, Naboth. And and Naboth was an incredible gardener. I mean, he was gifted by God. And God was with Naboth. and, And Naboth had this little family vineyard that was so beautiful. It was superior to anything that Ahab and Jezebel had seen. It's kind of like that guy in your neighborhood, you know, who's really good at at, at keeping his yard and his hedges. Man, he knows when to fertilize and everything looks perfect. You know, the people that make me sick in my neighborhood. 
Uh, I live next to a deacon in my church in, in uh, Alabama, and he was, I'm not one of those people. I'm looking at Gina, trying not to look at her. Um, he, was, he was one of those people, and we lived next door. And I mean, the grass met. There wasn't a hedge. There was nothing in between. And you could tell exactly where the fertilizer line went. We called it heaven and hell. And you can only guess whose yard was hell. Well, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel saw this incredible little family vineyard. You know what they said? We're not going to live another day without that being our vineyard. Jezebel had that man, Naboth, killed, and they took his vineyard, and it just ruined them. You know, people's lives are being harmed today by what you think you've got to have for your life to be what you think it should be. And there are some people here today that they may very well be ruined by it. When God spoke the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, it's a very loving thing to do. Because what God's doing is trying to set us free from ourselves, from the web that we make, that our hearts get caught up in. But you know the hard thing about coveting? See, so you say, well, you know, okay, okay, I, I get that. I, I kind of knew what coveting was before I walked in here. But you know the hard thing about coveting is? Is coveting kind of is that thing that is, is a good thing that goes over the top and becomes a bad thing. Coveting actually is rooted in the good gifts of God. Things that are absolutely... Is there anything wrong with the house? No. Is there anything wrong with the car? No. Is there anything wrong with the truck? Is there anything wrong? I mean, no. All these things are good gifts of God. You see, we, deep down, we, we, we have a hard time with this because we kind of know what the reality is, that this is good stuff that turns poisonous in our minds and our hearts. We know, for instance, that the Scriptures say we can have private property, right? That that's fine. All the boundary lines in the Old Testament. We know that the Scriptures say that we can have possessions. What it says is that they shouldn't possess us. That they, these, this property or possession should not be our identity. And anything that we have that is a good gift of God is then a part of stewardship, meaning we will glorify God with what we have. Sometimes that means we're going to share it. Sometimes that means we're going to extend the kingdom with it. We're going to be responsible with it. You, you get the idea. But it's funny how the word covet in the Old Testament comes out of the root word that literally means pleasant or desirable. So if you want to know in Hebrew what the word covet means, it means pleasant or desirable gone horribly wrong. The Hebrew word hamad. It's first used in Genesis 2.9. I'll, I'll quote it to you. Describing, remember, this is before the fall, describing the trees that God made in the Garden of Eden. Quote, The Lord God made all kind of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were, here's the word, pleasing to the eye and good for food. So Hamad means they're beautiful. They're good. They're pleasing to the eye. They're a good gift. That's the word for covet. So there's is something in our heart that flips the switch between what is a beautifully good gift of God and what becomes a shackling enslavement of our hearts to those things. Ron Mel, who's an author, says a covetous person is someone with a severe craving for the possessions or the life circumstances of another person. 
It is not a casual, wouldn't it be nice if... It is a strong, I want what you have because I feel that it is what would satisfy me and make me happy. A covetous person tends to see the world only in terms of how the world benefits his own needs. We struggle with this. I do. I don't think you can live in this country in 2012 without struggling with the Tenth Commandment and struggling mightily. Do you feel the pull of how good things can be tipped into poisonous things that hurt our souls and our relationships? It's really not easy to pursue a relationship with somebody that you just want their stuff, that you're jealous of, you want their stuff, you want their job, you want their house, you want their this. How, how well can you love a person that you just covet? Answer, not very well. How, how much emotional energy, how much actual love do we have left over when we spend all of our time just holding so deeply onto things? You see, it's so sad. Life's short. Y'all, I'm 50. I've just now realized life's short. It was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a revelation. And we know, once you have it, it doesn't work. Look, there's a, there's a little period of time where something is really cool and, and makes you feel better about things. Nobody's trying to deny that, but really, have you ever got something and six months later said, this is the meaning of life? No. More emptiness. And what do you have to do after you're empty again? You either need to go find where the fullness comes from or you need to try again. Put your sights on something else. Put your sights on somebody else. I mean, what is it right now in your life that you've got to have so that life can be the way it ought to be for you? And you know, coveting is telling God, you don't know how to meet my needs. You're not going to take care of me. I don't trust you. I have to step in to take hold of my life, to make sure I get what I know I need. It's an indictment against the goodness of God and the good providence of God for His people. You know, coveting is not just the problem of people in the land of plenty. When I was in India, I see my friend Karen Kumar, who was, we were with in India three years ago. Uh, we went down to the very tip of India to a place called Matam, and I was walking the little center where we were, a little teaching center. One morning I drank my coffee or tea or chai tea or whatever we were drinking and, and walked across and wanted to, to go. What's that ocean? Is that the Indian Ocean there? Arabic Sea or something. The what? Bay of, Bay of Bengal. None of the above. Bay of Bengal. Thank you very much. It's gorgeous. And I thought, I'm going to walk down there on that beach. You know, rock spray and everything. And so to get to the beach, you had to go through a little village. So I walked through this little village, and there's all these neat little houses in a row, very tiny village. And um, on each of the little houses, there was a tiny little plaque. And I noticed that every single house had a plaque. And so I walked up close to one of the houses to see what the plaque said, and, and the plaque simply said MTW. 
And I thought, that's strange. MTW, Mission to the World. That, in case you don't know, that's kind of the mission, missions uh, sending organization of our denomination. So when I got back up to the place, I said, hey, I saw the strangest thing. I was in the little, you know, the little village. Yeah, yeah. Every one of these little houses had a little plaque that said MTW. He goes, yeah, MTW. He goes, I said, well, tell me. About you know, the tsunami wiped that entire village out. And the PCA, our denomination, took up an offering and rebuilt the village, every single house. I felt so proud. I mean, I just walked up and just accidentally saw MTW, like good things actually do happen in Presbyterian churches. It's amazing. On the other side of the world. He said, but let me tell you, it wasn't without controversy. And in the end, I think a lot of them hated us. They hated us? Why did they hate us? He said, well, we got down there building these houses. And we got this little plan that all the... And so we, we built this house and, and finished it. And everybody was... They were happy with the house. And I'm talking about people that had nothing. And then we went to the next house and the next person was happy with the house. Then we went to the next person and the person said, well, well, while you're building my house, I'd like this wall moved over here and I'd like a little bit more room in my kitchen. And so they moved the wall and gave a little bit more room in the kitchen and the, the first two hated, hated that person. And the next thing you know, there's all up in arms about what my house has to be versus your house and which house is better. And finally, the, the person, the Indian person said, get a clue, one plan. Build them all identical or they're going to hate you by the time you finish. And they did. You don't have to be, have a lot of money around you to covet. Covets about how good things, even mercy relief, good things become poisonous through our grabbing hearts. It is about our hearts, what we must have for our lives to be the way they ought to be. It is when a good desire becomes a sinful craving. You know, I think about how draining my own coveting is. Maybe you need to like call time out and actually think about this. We don't really look at our lives maybe the way we should. How much energy do we waste in just seriously wanting stuff and, and, and like this all the time? What would it be great to, to have that energy back? You know, to, to give to people that we love, to, to, to walk with the Lord, to do very constructive things. In this world, you know, Jesus, when he was on earth, uh, as he came from God, he was here 33 years. Can you imagine never, ever having one covetous thought? How free would you be? Which leads us to the second thing, and that is contentment. Coveting builds a web of our own making that our souls get caught in. And it's draining. But God wants us to have be more toward contentment and more toward freedom and less toward bondage. See, the Tenth Commandment is not just a prohibition, stop coveting. It's also find contentment. Our problem is that just as we can never be satisfied, um, maybe we're too easily satisfied Meaning maybe we don't really look for where the real contentment is. Maybe we're too easily set. Maybe we don't look to where it is. Maybe the real contentment is with God 
and what God does in our lives and, and not just the, the furniture that we move around in our lives. I mean, that we could want something deeper. Something that has a longer than a six-week week shelf life of bliss in our lives. Something that's more real and more lasting. And this is basically finding our chief joy in a relationship with the Lord who helps me find what everything around me means. How do we know what things mean? How do we know what people mean? Because we have found our rest, our satisfaction, our joy in the Lord, and and we seek first His kingdom and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Psalm 1611 says, You have made known to me the path of life. Listen to this. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. What the psalmist is saying is, with you is real joy. With you is real pleasures. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. And the truth of the matter is, you can't grab and grab and be satisfied. Now, I know that's hard to believe. There will be no satisfaction without a relationship with our Creator. And without His good intentions being born in our lives and His love and His peace being given to us until we have that relationship that supersedes all these others and helps us make sense of the world around us, we will never get this in proper perspective. I love the old King James Version of John 10.10. I have come... Maybe you all know this if you learned the King James first like I did. I have come that they might have life and have it, what, more abundantly. You go, well, there it is. There's the American verse. I love Jesus. I get more stuff. I came they might have life and have it more abundantly. See, this whole thing is about where you really think life is. Is life in Jesus and, and what Christ can give you? That is more abundantly. That is His love. That is His peace. That is all this perspective that comes from knowing Jesus. And through the grace of God, our our souls really are squared away. And and in His presence, our deepest hunger is met. Why don't we believe that? Look, there, there are times when I don't believe that. With Him we are filled, and our cup runneth over. With Him we are secured. And we really don't need stuff to make us feel secure. Why do we listen and why do we fall for all those messages, Brad, that you prayed about? Why do we believe the lie? I'll tell you why. Deep in our heart of hearts, we think this. If we were to live the Christian life and trust God, we'd have less. We come out with a smaller life, not a bigger life. If we were to really trust God, we'd end up with less. God's going to gyp me. It's going to be a simple life of less. Therefore, I need to step in and live large and get what I need for my life to be what it's supposed to be. But you know something? The Christian life is a bigger life. It's a life that is more full. The Christian life is is living at its top because it is living with God Himself. 
We are repenting all the way. We are sinners. But God is loving us. God is drawing us. God is saying, follow me. It is a life of glorifying God, enjoying God, and enjoying everything and everybody around us. Would that we could just live full tilt in glorifying Him and full tilt in enjoying every good gift He has given us. Enjoy your house. Enjoy your car. Enjoy your whatever, you know, you fill in the thing. Glorify God with these things. See, being content is not just a matter of the discipline to turn off your wanters. Thou, you shall not covet. Turn off your wanters. Stop that. I can tell you're coveters. Stop it. <laughs> it's a matter of living in the fullness of Christ and sharing that fullness with others. And that life equals more, not less. Isn't that beautiful? One last word, because there's even more. Come like that, you know those commercials where they make you an offer and they say, but wait, if you order in the next five minutes, we'll give you this, but wait. <laughs> well, this can I add a but wait? But wait, this isn't even all there is. Even the good gifts that God gives believers on this earth, that's not even all it is. Even knowing God and, and having a relationship with Him and, and loving Him and other people and enjoying all these things on this earth while we live here, and, and pursuing the kingdom of God, that's not even all there is. Because there's more that awaits. It's called heaven. And the important thing to understand is this life, even in Christ, was actually, is actually not supposed to deliver what only heaven can deliver. And if you're looking for heaven on earth, you will never find it. You're not even going to find heaven on earth in Jesus. You're going to find heaven in heaven with Jesus. And you're going to find grace and peace on earth with Jesus. I love these words of C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, about how the most wonderful... He's talking about people that love the Lord. Um, the most wonderful things we experience uh, here on earth are just kind of a barely a taste of all we have to look forward to. He says, they are not the thing, you know, the things that we experience. They are not the thing itself for which we really yearn. They are only the scent of a flower that we have never found. The most fragrant thing you've ever, is just a scent of a flower that we have never found. It, they are an echo of a tune that we have not heard. It is news from a country that we have never yet visited. But we will. But we will through Jesus. And the satisfaction that you can have now will come through walking with Him. And the struggles that you're going to have as you seek to walk with God, and that is okay, as long as you continue to walk in faith and repentance with Him, even that will be swallowed up one day by heaven. 
Do you know something? And there will never, ever, ever be one more struggle with coveting ever again. See, that's what God is going to give us. But he wants to give us something substantially toward that now rather than the bondage of just grabbing as our way of life. You shall not covet. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our hands. Lord, if we have identified even during this this time of what it is that we have to have, would you help us to lift that up before you in the light of, of your mercy and grace? Lord, would you, even as we go to this table, remind us of eternal things, remind us of what is real, remind us of what is truly love and rich and satisfying. And would you, Lord, meet with us in this time of communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.